0: Well, good morning and welcome to Convergent Church. If you're joining us for your first time, we're grateful that you are here with us today. My name is Dan and I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church. And there are two things that we value above all else at Convergent Church. The first being the gospel. The good news that because of God's love for us, when we all turned away in our sin, he didn't leave us to meet The end of our sin. He didn't leave us to meet the end of our own demise, but instead sent his son Jesus, as we just sang about, to live the perfect sinless life that we were unable to live and to die the sinner's death on a cross that we deserve to die. And the Bible teaches that by simply believing in the reality of this truth in our hearts and by confessing that Jesus is Lord with our mouth, that Jesus' sacrifice is applied to us. That means all of your sin and all of my sin, all of the bad things we have done, are doing and will ever do have been paid in full once and for all through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross in our place and that all the good things that Jesus has done has been applied to us, meaning that we stand faultless before the God of the universe and as children that he has chosen to adopt as his own. The second thing we value here at Convergent Church is people. More specifically, we value you. We love and desire to be in community with you. Not only to celebrate the victories and the good things that are happening in your life, but also to carry the weight, the sin, and the burdens of this life with you. God made us for community as He exists in perfect community And the church isn't merely a building that gets frequented on Sundays, it's a community of people who have been changed by the gospel and are together growing in that gospel and living sent lives that are on mission to bear witness of this gospel in our homes, in our communities surrounding us, and in the places where we are employed. This morning we're going to be continuing our new sermon series through 1 John titled Our Joy Complete. So if you'd like to go ahead, you can start uh, turning to 1 John. Up to this point, we've seen the author's purpose in writing the letter, which you may have guessed by the title of the series. John says in 1 John 1 verse 4, We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Joy is not happiness. They're not synonyms. Because happiness is circumstantial. Happiness fades when suffering and trials abound, whereas joy transcends our circumstances because it is rooted in a deep contentment and satisfaction in God and His Word. It is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Now, we had a pretty crazy storm here in town uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Tornado warning and everything. There was lots of flooding and several trees that came down as a result of this storm. But has anyone ever seen a palm tree in the midst of a hurricane? Though it may bend, it doesn't break because its roots run deep. And that's a picture of what joy manifested in the life of a believer looks like. Sometimes life sucks. Sometimes people suck. Sin sucks. Physical pain sucks. Financial destitution sucks. But the roots of joy, run deep, finding sustenance in the Lord and trusting in His provision that He is good even when our circumstances are not. Then last week we examined how God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, and how if we say we have fellowship with Him while walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Furthermore, if we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And thus, truth is not in us. Yet, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him and with one another. Then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. And if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And that brings us to chapter 2 where we'll be spending some time today. But before we begin the text, let's first begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your church today. We thank you that you meet here with us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can be in your presence. Yet, Lord, we confess that this is by no merit of our own. There is no good in us. There is nothing right in us that should allow us to be in your presence this day. And while, Lord, you could have led us to meet the end of our own sin, God, I thank you that you sent Jesus to become our sin. And, Lord, I thank you that you have given us new eyes and new hearts to see your gospel. So, Lord, as we open the scriptures today... I pray that we would see and that we would obtain a greater glimpse of you. And as we pray every Sunday here at Convergent Church, that when we leave this place today, that we wouldn't leave saying, what great people or what great music or what a cool space or what a great message, but simply what a great Savior we have in Jesus. We are here for you this day, Lord. Will you open our ears to hear from your word? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and let's begin reading in 1 John uh, John 2 and in verse 1. John says, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Now, in the church, we are very good at using words without defining them. And sometimes without even understanding them ourselves. I know I've been guilty of both. At the end of the day, we did not start Convergent Church because there weren't enough churches in the city of Owasso. We didn't start a new church to merely meet the consumeristic needs of disenfranchised Christians. Rather, we started a church because we want the 90% of people in the city who don't know Jesus to meet Him in a very real way. And that doesn't happen apart from people seeing their sin and turning to Jesus in faith and in repentance. Yet how can we turn away from sin if we don't know what sin is? So while this may be very elementary for some, possibly even the majority of this room, I never want to make the ascension, uh, the assumption that everyone knows what I'm talking about. So today we're going to define a few terms as we work through the text. The first being sin. John said, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. So what is sin? To sin is to err in our actions, to commit wrongdoing, to deviate from the truth. God defines that which is good and that which is true. And God, being a loving Father, has set boundaries for our well-being and benevolence. He set these in place for His children. That's you and I. These are some of His laws as revealed in Scripture. That we wouldn't have any other gods before Him. That we would have regular rhythms of rest that we wouldn't covet one another's possessions, that we wouldn't lie, that we wouldn't cheat on our spouses, thus committing adultery or steal. You get the idea. Listen to what Deuteronomy 6.24 has to say about God's law. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Did you catch that? The laws of God are for our good always. The Christian Standard Bible says it this way. The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes for our prosperity always and for our preservation. His law has been given for our prosperity and for our preservation. His laws were given to bless us and to keep us. Let's ponder this for a moment. Life is better when our allegiance isn't torn. Let me rephrase that slightly differently. Life is better when we resolve to live for God and God alone, isn't it? It doesn't always mean life is easier, but that we have that clarity of mind and the peace of knowing that we are living in accordance with God's revealed will. Life is better when we are rested, Physically, without a doubt, but especially spiritually. Endlessly working takes a toll on our minds and on our bodies, does it not? We need to be renewed day by day through prayer and time in God's Word. Life is better when we're content with the things that God has given us instead of always chasing that new, hottest thing. The newest car, the latest Apple device, all these things that our friends have that we don't have that we thus covet after. It's exhausting, isn't it? Contrary to what we are sold, possessions, while they may satisfy us for a moment, always leave us wanting more. That new car that we just have to have will be rusting out in a junkyard in 20 years. The thrill of that new iPhone that you just spent $800 on will be the same thrill that someone else feels when they buy it from your garage sale for $5 in a decade. And the list goes on and on. Life is better when we don't lie, having to remember what untruth we told who is exhausting. Life is better when we are faithful to our spouses, uh, guarding our hearts, and not pursuing every lustful temptation that comes our way. Life is better when we don't steal, constantly having to look over our shoulders in paranoia. It's exhausting. My point in all of this is this. God's laws are not to restrict or constrict the believer, but rather for our prosperity and preservation. God's laws serve as the guardrails of spiritual prosperity on the road of life. And sin makes us stupid. Sin is joy's public enemy number one. So why does John write these things so that we may not sin? Because sin robs us of our joy. Sin displaces our satisfaction and contentment in the Lord and places it in people and in the things of this world. And people and things make really crappy gods. They will always inevitably fail us because they're carrying a weight and a burden that they were never designed to carry. But if you're like me, you hate your sin. Like Paul in Romans 7, we struggle and don't do the good things that we want to do, all the while continuing on in the bad things that we don't want to do. Who else has felt in the pit of their soul Paul's words when he said, "'Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this sinful flesh?' We wage war on our sin in an effort to kill it, but then it pops up somewhere else. We hide out from it. We put obstacles in front of it, yet still we succumb to it. Now, let me preface here. John has made it clear that we cannot reach a point of sinless perfectionism in this life. In chapter 1, verse 8, he said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But John does believe that we can sin less because we are now in intimate fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the question I endeavor to answer for us this morning is this, how is it that we begin to overcome our sin in the war for joy? This morning, we'll be examining two interconnected realities that are the basis upon which we make forward progress of sinning less. And here's our first reality. Point number one, Jesus is our advocate. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we sin, we have an advocate. The Greek word for advocate that is used here means an intercessor, an advocate, a consoler, or a helper. This word is used only five times in the entirety of the New Testament, and it's used in two different ways. Four times it's used in reference to the Holy Spirit as a comforter, bestowing spiritual aid and consolation. We see that in John 14, 26, which will be on the screen behind me. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In John fifteen, twenty-six. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The word helper in both of these instances is the same word we see being used here in first John 2 1 for advocate. The Spirit bears witness or advocates to our souls that we belong to Jesus and brings to remembrance the truth of his gospel to us. The last way we see it used in reference is in reference to Jesus, which we see used here in 1 John 2, 1. And it's speaking of an intercessor or legal advocate. It refers to one who speaks on behalf of the accused, one who pleads the cause of the accused before a judge. And when someone commits a crime, especially against us, what is it that we desire? Justice. We desire that justice would be served and that recompense be made. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, we read, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And in Colossians 3.25, we see that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. As we addressed earlier, all of us have sinned. We've all willfully broken the laws of God. We've all deviated from the truth. And we've committed wrongdoing against him and against one another. Yet, God is perfect in justice. So what does that mean for you and I? That means that our sin cannot go unpunished. And the Bible teaches us that the punishment for our sin is death and eternal separation from God. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The picture here is that of a courtroom in heaven. We are the defendant. We are the accused and guilty party. God the Father is the just judge who executes perfect justice. Jesus is our court-appointed defense attorney pleading on our behalf. And Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is the prosecuting attorney. One by one, the accuser of the the brethren goes through the, the Ten Commandments. Starting at the top, he says, Judge, they have had other gods before you. They have made idols instead of worshiping you. They have cursed and have taken your name in vain. They haven't remembered the Sabbath and to take rest in you. They haven't honored their fathers and mothers in the way that they should. They have committed murder, some physically, while many others have hated one another in their hearts. And you said that these two are one and the same. Some did it with their hands, while others did it in their hearts. They have committed adultery. Some have physically cheated on their spouses, while others have lustfully looked upon others and committed adultery in their hearts. And you have said that these two are one and the same. Some did it with their ha- with their hands, while others did it in their hearts. They have stolen. They have lied, gossiped, and bore false witness. They have coveted. It's not looking good for us, is it? The prosecuting attorney, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, he's right. And if we're being honest, we know that. God has said, have no other gods before me. Yet with our time, with our money, and with our allegiance, we perpetually make idols out of other people, our careers, comforts, and even hobbies. He has said, do not commit adultery. But even more than that, don't even look upon a man or woman with lust in your heart. Because in so doing that, we've committed adultery in our hearts. Yet 70% of Christian men regularly consume pornography as do 15% of Christian women and those statistics are actually seven years old and it's probably much higher as more and more things are happening on the internet now. God has said don't steal yet how prone are we to steal time and thus money from our employers to be absent-minded when we are working or playing on our phones or taking that extra long trip to the bathroom. To not do all of our work to the glory of the Lord, to neglect the fact that we are to work as unto the Lord and not to earthly masters. And we could go on and on through every one of these commandments. We've broken them all. Yet from the dawn of creation, God has been very clear that our rebellion against Him, the wage our sin affords us, is death and eternal separation. It's what we deserve. So, if this judge executes perfect justice, how could we possibly be declared innocent? What defense could possibly be made that substantiates our innocence before this judge? What evidence could be presented that we be acquitted of these accusations? Then Jesus, the Son of God, our advocate, stands. But what is the premise upon which? the defense can make a case for our innocence. And this is the good news, my friends. Point number two. Jesus is our propitiation. We see this in verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins. The Greek word here means a sacrifice that bears wrath and turns it to favor. It not only appeases the anger of the offended party, but produces reconciliation and delight in the offender. And this is what Jesus has accomplished for us. Continuing on in the courtroom of heaven, our advocate Jesus stands before the judge and says, Judge, I've heard the accusations of the prosecuting attorney, and I can attest to the fact that every accusation that has been presented is true. These claims can be substantiated. But one thing the accuser has neglected to take into account. I bore their sin in myself. Remember, Judge, remember the plan we had from eternity past, that I would come and be their rescue. Judge, remember I came and lived the perfect sinless life that they were unable to live and paid the price for their sin with my life. I took the beatings and the embarrassment and the shame that their sin deserved. Not only that, but I carried the cross they were to be nailed to for their sin. And like a sheep led to the slaughter, I came as the once and for all sacrifice for their sin. I offered up my body and was nailed on the cross in their place. And finally, I was put to death on their behalf for their sin." You have said that death and separation were the punishment for their sin, and I paid that price in full, taking all of their sin and all of their wrath upon myself. I took it upon myself and declared, It is finished. Then I rose from the grave. I conquered sin's power over them and stand here before you this day to intercede on their behalf. And upon hearing from both the prosecution And the defense, the judge slams the gavel and declares, not guilty. And not only that, but I've adopted you as my own and I take delight in you. Jesus is the propitiation for your sin and for my sin. Jesus is the sacrifice that appeased the wrath of the Father that we deserved. And He has turned it into favor. But on this point, I must add a very important disclaimer There is no hint of the pagan notion of propitiation overcoming the reluctance of an arbitrary deity because God the Father himself takes the initiative in providing the sacrifice which is needed for our sins to be given. We'll see this in greater detail in a few weeks. In 1 John 4.10 it says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is our propitiation because the father uh, desired to reconcile with us. And he willed it to be so. It was his plan through and through. He is the one who appointed Christ as our advocate and sent him to be our propitiation. And to make atonement for our sin. The father planned it. The son purchased it and the Spirit perseveres it. Let's read the second half of 1 John 2, verse 2. We read that He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is not only the propitiation, not only the atoning sacrifice for your sin and for my sin, but also the sins of the whole world. And this is good news because this means that the gospel is no longer limited to one group of people or to one ethnicity or to one social class or one geographical region. But rather the good news is for all people spanning across all the earth. Jesus' sacrificial death is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. It is effective for is effective for any who would call upon his name this day. Let me say that one more time. Jesus' sacrificial death is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. It is effective for any who would call on his name this day. So, how would you stand this morning before the just judge in heaven? On what grounds would the case for your innocence be established? You've seen the list of accusations made against you. You've seen God's law laid out. And if you're honest with yourself, you know you've fallen short of His righteous standards. You know you've missed the mark. You know that you've sinned against God. So what are the grounds upon which you can be found faultless, that you can stand faultless before a judge who executes perfect justice? Think about this for a moment. If the Father were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? Let's just ponder that for a moment. What would your answer be if God said, why should I let you into heaven? In your head just now, did your response begin with, because I fill in the blank. Because I go to church every Sunday. Because I was raised in a Christian home. Because I am a good person. No, you're not. No one is. There was one good person, and his name was Jesus. Or because I've done good things. Yeah, I've broken some of God's laws, but I've done, I've done good things to balance it out. I've given to charity. I've fed the, the homeless. I try to do the right thing. I try to be nice to people. But how does that stack up against Jesus' words in Matthew 7:22? On that day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's the point. It's not about you. And it's not about me. And it's not about what you or I have done. Because even on our best day, we still fall pitifully, pitifully short of God's righteous standards. We seldom do the good that we ought to do. And even when we do good, are there not often selfish ambitions attached to it? A tax incentive. A social media post highlighting our good deed of the day. A pat on the back. Or the praise of our peers. If our answer on the day of judgment begins with, because I... We've missed it. And we have no hope for this life or for the next. We won't receive the not guilty verdict we so desperately need. There is but one appropriate answer. Because Jesus... He lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died the sinner's death on a cross that I deserve to die. He is my advocate. He is my propitiation. He is my rescue. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. And can you say that this morning? Have you believed on the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for your sin? Have you confessed with your mouth? And have you believed in your heart that he is Lord? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have any questions about that, or if that's a decision that you'd like to make this morning, I'd love to talk to you in a few moments when the band uh, comes back up here to lead us in another song. So, how is it that we overcome our sin? How is it that we make forward progress in sinning less? By surrender. In surrender to the gospel, surrendering to the good news that Jesus did what we could not do, and surrendering to the gospel is not a one-time event. Often we're prone to think that the gospel is something that we believe on that grants us access to God and access into heaven. We view it as if it's the the diving board into the pool of Christianity. But the pool itself is the gospel that we ought to be swimming in often. Often. There's not enough good in us. We do not have enough strength or willpower to overcome our sin on our own. But when we remember the gospel in the face of temptation to sin, when we remember the good news that Jesus died to set us free from it, and that now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually say, no, there is liberty there. Jesus paid for it with his life. Yet even still, we hold this hope. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. By these two interrelated truths, we overcome. Jesus is our advocate and he is our propitiation. We are his and we are free. Convergent Church, we live and labor to see Christ's kingdom come to the city of Owasso, to see the reality of his rule and reign made increasingly visible in our midst. We live and labor to see our city transformed by the gospel until the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. And this is the good news that he has given us to proclaim to the city of Owasso. There stands but one who can make atonement for our sin. There stands but one who can give us right standing before a just judge. There's not enough good in us. There's not enough good things we can do. We can't pull our bootstraps up enough to make atonement for our sin. But simply, we must throw ourselves at the foot of His cross and look up and behold Him there who is the sacrifice for our sin. John has written these things so that we may not sin, because sin steals our joy. These things were written so that our joy may be complete. Bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer, if you will. Father, all of us have gone astray. from the garden to this very day, all of us have chosen our own glory over yours. All of us have said that we know the better way. All of us have broken your laws. And you would have been just to leave us to meet the end of our sin. But because of your love and because of your grace, You sent Jesus as our propitiation. You sent Jesus to be the advocate who pleads our case. And Lord, we thank you that by simply believing upon you, by believing in our hearts and confessing with our tongues, we can have right standing with the God of the universe. But more than that, the sacrifice that was made was made once and for all. So even though we still toil and we struggle and we sin, Even still, we have an advocate who is our propitiation, who paid the once-for-all price. So God, may that be what liberates us to walk in the newness of life. When we struggle with sin, Lord, may we remember to dive into the pool of the gospel. Would we remember that because of Christ's work, we actually have the ability to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. God, we thank you that you overcame. And it's only by your sacrifice that we too have overcome. So may we find rest in this today, Lord. And may we live resolved to live this gospel out to the city of Owasso and beyond. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.